Hey, Elboists, have you checked out MKL Reads lately? MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reads where you can try reads from various makers and then select the one that is best for you. How cool is that? Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code DOUBLE SPACE READ SPACE DISH, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Don't you hate feeling bored with all the music on your stand? Well, luckily, you never have to feel that way again. JDW Sheet Music offers a wide variety of chamber music pieces for wind players of all ages. Their catalog includes duets, trios, quintets, and even double reed choir pieces for beginner, intermediate, and advanced players. Each of the pieces on the site will include sample pages, audio excerpts, and short descriptions. JDW Sheet Music has also made it possible to access the music sooner through the new digital download-only feature. Pieces that are marked digital download only will be made available immediately after purchase. To learn more about JDW Sheet Music, please visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Galee, I'm a little mad at you, I have to admit. What? (laughs) Well, you've been done with your semester for a long time, and I sit here at work surrounded by piles of grading. I think the piles are 18 feet high. (laughs) How tall are you in this scenario? Three feet tall? I've been in my office for so long, and... Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But I am jealous that you're done with your. Song. I know you're mad at me. I know. I've been done for almost a week. Sorry, not sorry. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Listen, USM does it right. We get done early and we're out of there. <laughs> well, we're winding down. So we're just at that point in the semester where the student who has checked out the entire semester and then suddenly starts to care about their grade. They're all coming out of the woodwork and you, um, you show up to class and there are six students you've never seen before. And- <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Who dis? Ah, <laughs> oh, the end of the semester is hard, but we'll we'll all get through. I've already gotten through, you'll get through, everyone will get through. And then it's holiday time, which is very stressful for some people. Well, yeah, it's already holiday time for you. How was your Hanukkah? It was great, actually. I went to North Carolina, visited with my parents, went thrift shopping. If anyone here is listening from Charlotte, North Carolina, I cleaned up at Uptown Cheapskate, so probably don't go there because all the good stuff is gone. (laughs) But yeah, it was awesome. I got to see my parents and my brother and his wife and do Hanukkah the the real way with family (laughs) instead of just in my home by myself. So do you have a holiday studio tradition that you like to do every year? Yes, we have double read carols, which started as a result of my student Hannah when she was a freshman. She's all about Christmas and Christmas music. And 
I'm not like Scrooge McDuck about it, but I, I feel kind of fine about it. I'm usually just like semester survival mode actually. Um, and she came up to me with these big old doe eyes and she was like, (laughs) aren't we going to do anything for Christmas? And it was like, okay, kid. But (laughs) (laughs) so we found this local place, Cup and Cork, that let us come and play some Christmas carols. And then they were like, this is so much fun. Let's make it an annual like first Friday thing. And then they shut down over the summer. They closed. Mm. And we were like, eh what are we going to be doing for Double Read Carols? And you have this great tradition of doing uh, collections for your local food pantry in Hattiesburg. Yes, it's a new tradition, but it's we're doing it. Well, and you do it year round or you, you do it regularly, okay. right? Yeah, yeah. And so I just thought that was so hospitable and just in the right spirit and it inspired me. And so I went, you know, there's really no reason we shouldn't be doing that here as well, there are certainly really similar issues in Southeast Missouri in terms of hunger and poverty. And even just looking at what uh, organizations we could potentially collaborate with, the stats that I found in that process, I was like, oh man, Galit's got the right idea. We need to be serving our community in this way. And there's really no reason we can't add a food drive to the Double Read Carols. That makes my heart so happy. Yeah. It, it, well, and it turned out really well because I was nervous because Cup and Cork is right by the music building. So we'd had a huge turnout in the past several years and we were moving way further off campus. Um, and I was really afraid that like no one was going to come <laughs> and we get there and start playing. It's standing room only. There are people who wanted to hear us who, because they put us in like this banquet room that you have to usually rent for like baby showers and that type of thing. And there were people who wanted to hear us play who could only be in like the main part of the bakery that we were in. And we had so many donations. We had 216 pounds is what they measured it at. That is amazing. Yeah. We said, please bring a can. And pretty much everyone brought a, uh, what is it called when you have like the cardboard box at the grocery store? Oh, the pallet boxes. Pallet boxes. Yes. It was like pretty much everyone brought a pallet box. That is awesome. Yeah. People brought so much. They just got really into the giving spirit. We got several cash donations as well that we were able to hand over. Wow. So it was a really great thing to add. And my students felt really good about themselves and their contribution. And so I think that that is going to be, in addition to Double Read Carols being an ongoing thing, uh, the food drive will be an ongoing thing as well. That is amazing. Yeah. And it didn't add too much to organize or anything yeah. like that. It was just basically like, oh, by the way, you should all bring a can. Yeah. And <laughs> that was basically I mean, it. I mean, I scream this at the top of my lungs all the time, but it's for a lot of, you know, I mean, I, the, the food drives that I do are targeted toward our uh, USM food pantry, which is called Eagle's Nest, and they serve students, faculty, and staff. And sometimes it's the difference of one car repair bill or one medical bill Mm -hmm. or one credit card bill where all of a sudden you don't have enough money for food. And there's a stigma around it, but there really shouldn't be because the best of us are vulnerable to food insecurity and it has really nothing to do with your internal worth or anything like that. And plus school is really expensive. So um, at USM, we have a lot of students and I'm sure faculty and staff who use the food pantry. And it's kind of 
a wonderful, not kind of, it is an amazing safety net um, so that you, you don't have to come to school hungry because we can't learn when we're hungry. Yeah. It's like that phrase, uh, but for the grace of God, there go I. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm so excited by that. That's so amazing. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, but I don't do like come over to my house or whatever. I did that one year and they stayed for like five seconds and then they were like, smell you later. And I did all this <laughs> elaborate stuff and they were not about hanging out with me. Well, I actually do have them come over my house, but <laughs> we do um, we do a potluck. So everyone brings food. And this year, everyone brought sugary food, except for one student who brought her dad's famous macaroni and cheese, which was awesome. Oh, I'm jealous. I want to try <laughs> I'm coming next year. We play White Elephant and we play uh, Apples to Apples. So that's the studio tradition around holiday time. And we do it before the jury, two days before. So everyone still has time to practice. And then after the jury, they can all get out of here and go home. Well, and you should also mention your gift that you got from your student. Oh my God. I can't believe I didn't think to mention it. Thank you so much for reminding me. So my student, Ashley Moffitt. She's on Instagram at Ashley Cora. She painted an original work for me, and it is one of the most gorgeous things I've ever seen. It's an oboe, and I have it on my Instagram. You can follow me at Hello Oboe, and you can see it there. And one of my favorite things about it, besides the fact that it's gorgeous, is that the oboe, you know the part on the oboe where it would say the maker like Lorraine or Marigo or whatever? Instead of the maker's name, she put my name. I didn't notice that. I was definitely like freaking out over this artwork and being like, I want one. <laughs> <laughs> I think she would do commissions, by the way. So shout out to Ashley, who is incredibly talented. And then on the bottom, you know, on the bell where it says the maker, she wrote my last name and put a little crown over it. And I was like, this is my favorite thing that has ever happened. <laughs> well, and we've all gotten more of those uh, wire musician sculptures than we know what to do with. <laughs> I look to my left and I have no less than six. <laughs> And I can't help but feel like I would trade in at least two of my Wireman bazoomling sculptures <laughs> for something like this. That's just above and beyond. How beautiful. Oh, my God. I know. I'm going to keep it forever. I'm going to hang it above my uh, reed-making station, and then I can look at it for inspiration when I'm making reeds. Well, we asked the listeners about their gigsmas holiday traditions in their studio, what they have going on during this holiday season. And we got some great responses. Well, the Miami University Bassoon Studio uh, said that we always have an annual studio holiday party. We go caroling around the music department during finals week and we play at a local holiday concert to benefit the Community Arts Center in town. We love those charitable double reads. That's right. M says, in high school, before you could ask the music teacher a question in the month of December, you had to start with a quote from the movie Elf. <laughs> I don't know if I know that movie well enough to, <laughs> my questions would have gone unanswered. <laughs> That's so funny. I love it. Jenny just simply says, Nutcracker, oh my gosh, it's so intense. It's true. 
I mean, it's very intense, but I also think it's fun. And I've had some sweet nutcracker gigs in the past that have just gotten me in the holiday spirit. I get if you're like having to do like 80 of them that you could be really over it. But I always love a good nutcracker gig this time of year. You know, I also feel that way about Messiah. I know that it's not the most popular piece anymore, but I love it so much. Lauren says, a couple years ago, I was doing a viola gig and they ended up needing an oboist. I ended up doing both. The oboe part was a solo piece under a single spotlight. Keep in mind that I was maybe 15 or 16. (laughs) That was certainly unexpected. Nerves of steel. Yeah, work it out. If somebody said to me, surprise, you're going to play the viola in public, I would immediately throw up. Get you a girl who can do both. (laughs) (laughs) So this next submission is from Michael. And he says, every year it's the same. Shaw's many moods of Christmas, all four suites with the same huge church, the Messiah times three, and four to six smaller church orchestral programs. I'm lucky that I'm booked every weekend from Thanksgiving to the last weekend of December, in addition to my regular orchestras, their Christmas programs and rehearsals, and lastly, my small studio of 18 students. (laughs) Getting all of that to fit every year while resolving scheduling conflicts, maintaining my home and special needs daughter is a lot. I'm beyond grateful, but by December 15th, I'm ready for a Xanax and a vodka tonic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and speaking of being tired, that reminds me, I forgot when talking about double read carols to shout out my student, Joshua, who, okay. So this year I arranged all I want for Christmas is you for my students. And they were kind of talking about how the more arranged popular ones are a little bit more fun than the shorter traditional ones. Fair enough. And he said, uh, sometime we should arrange how the Grinch stole Christmas. That'd be great on the bassoon. And I said, Hey, if you do it, we'll play it thinking like eventually like future years. And then he shows up the next day to studio class looking like, you know, that emoji with like one small eye and one big eye. And he's like, <laughs> I stayed up till four in the morning arranging the Grinch. <laughs> we have it. <laughs> Joshua. So we have it and we have that. It was so much fun. Oh, I love it. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. You're a bad banana with a greasy black peel. Hey, let's talk about Jenna Ingalls Reads. She has built her business on providing high-quality, handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds, or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Podcast listeners can use the code DISH, all caps, for 10% off their first order at JennetIngle.com. That's J-E-N-N-E-T-I-N-G-L-E dot com. 
Whether you're an oboist or a bassoonist, everyone is on the lookout for a great reed knife. And good news, Genda Industries is making the reed knife great again with the Student Reed Knife by Genda. Genda Industries is known for its amazing quality and service in the double reed world, and in a world where the term student quality associates with cheap and disposable, Genda Industries is winning by making the best student reed knife ever. The student reed knife features a tapered handle that will fit any hand size as you grow, a high-quality stainless steel blade that won't rust, and it's actually sharpened, you guys. It's ready for use right out of the box. It's designed to be used when learning how to sharpen, and most importantly, since it's a gender reed knife, it is 100% supported by Genda. Plain and simple, the student reed knife by Genda is the knife you'll want as you start your reed making and adjusting journey. Add the code DRDGENDA, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any gender reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife, sharpening book, cutting stone, or reed tool roll. Visit them now at GendaIndustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just reed knives. We are so excited to welcome to Double Read Dish, Sherry Seiler, Associate Principal Oboe in the New York Philharmonic. Welcome to Double Read Dish. It's great to be with you ladies. Could we start off by having you tell us how you came to play the oboe in the first place? When I was growing up, my mom played the piano. So there was a piano in our house. And I guess I was about four, started plunking out tunes. They were pretty amazed that a kid could do this. All of a sudden, I was taking piano lessons, and when I got into junior high school, I entered the band on flute of all things. Oh my gosh! <laughs> but you know, I didn't I didn't fit the uh, flute profile very well. I'm not a diva, and, <laughs> um, and I also saw that my band director was an oboist, and every afternoon she was making reads in her office I thought what a cool thing to do so I asked her if I could play the oboe which didn't thrill her because she already had too many but she gave me what I would call a corn cob oboe to discourage me I think <laughs> but I took that sucker home uh, at a Christmas break and I, I just was like a a dog with a bone. You couldn't get me quit play in the oboe after that because I loved it so much and started making my reads right away. My band director's name was Linda Pennybaker and she went to Indiana University and studied with Jerry Srucek. So that's where I auditioned. I did my undergraduate there. I studied with Jerry Srucek and I actually studied with a violinist named Jamie Buswell who sort of helped me uh, get the soloist sort of frame of mind, how to play concertos, that kind of thing. It was really an interesting experience studying with the violinist because I couldn't make excuses about <laughs> the uh, oddities of the oboe. He just wanted to hear music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then I um, took auditions for Spoleto, did this uh, back in the day when they only had festival in Italy and I was excited to that was my first venture out of the United States I took um, auditions for the young concert artists it was a finalist and played a recital for them and through that I was invited back to Spoleto but this time as a chamber musician and 
got to play with Yo-Yo Ma and uh, Anthony Newman, Paula Robeson. It was just a wonderful and intimidating experience. Then I was playing in Evansville Philharmonic. Where is that? Indiana. (laughs) 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 Which I did for four years. I was teaching at the University of Evansville. Finally, I decided the only way to further my career was go back to graduate school. I went to Northwestern and studied with Ray still, and I started taking auditions. 13, and I won the Louisville Orchestra second oboe position, mm-hmm. which was a, a wonderful a way to start a career. Uh, it taught me a lot about how to play the oboe, the hard parts of the uh, low register. And Marion Gibson was such a wonderful mentor. During those two years that I was at, in Louisville, I really put the pedal to the metal, practicing and playing uh, solo recitals, anything I could do just to hone my craft further. Finally, in 1983, in September, the uh, Union Magazine um, advertised uh, New York Philharmonic Associate Principal Oboe. <laughs> I'd never taken a, a, an audition for a major orchestra. So what have I got to lose? You know, let me just go. I, I, and uh, I one in the first round I played and obviously I got through the second round was not for another month. So, uh, that was nail biting experience waiting to play. But on, uh, November the 4th, I was at the New York Philharmonic for three rounds of, um, audition. We went from nine, to three people and then the last round was just me playing English horn as that is part of my job and um, after these rounds uh, they called me into the personnel manager's office and there was the audition committee they started applauding and you've got the job but we want you to play the concert this afternoon just Mm. to to make sure you fit in with the orchestra and uh, you know as an associate principal, your job will oftentimes be jumping in. So I said, sure, why not? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have any more, you know, nerves left. So the next hour I spent trying, running around trying to find people who had big feet. And I didn't have black clothes is what I'm saying. So I had to find, <laughs> I had to find outfits to wear. Never mind warming up. So they asked me to play uh, Beethoven Emperor Piano Concerto, the, uh, you know, and it just, as Providence would have it, uh, I just played it in Louisville. Lucky me. And it went well. Um, I was given the advice, you know, to just watch Zubin like a hawk, which I did. And Wow, I got the job. <laughs> it was amazing. Then they wanted me to sit and listen to the second half, which was uh, the domestic symphony. I can only remember squirming because I wanted to call everybody I knew, but especially my parents. They were very proud. That was in November, and they negotiated with the Louisville Orchestra to let me out of my contract. So I started on Val- Valentine's Day, 
1984. And it's been a long time, man. I'm one of the old poops in the <laughs> orchestra. <laughs> Would you mind if we backtracked a little bit? And can I ask you about studying with Ray Still and the things that you learned from him? Sure. Uh, Ray was an amazing teacher. I only studied with him for nine months because at that point in time, you could get a, a master's degree from Northwestern in nine months. But that's all it took. And I would say the most important thing that Ray taught me was how to listen to myself in real time, you know, sort of um, being able to make adjustments when, while it's happening. It's a, he, he taught me how to sing um, he was so involved with the art of the vocal art and how you could transpose that onto playing the oboe. So um, that was probably the most important thing he taught me. One of the things that Galit and I were talking about before you joined the call was um, how much we both admired that you, of course, operate at such a high level in the orchestral setting, but you also are active as a soloist. We'll get to the concerto that you premiered in a little bit. Um, you have solo CDs, you do chamber music, um, and as you mentioned, you do both oboe and English horn as a part of your job. So we wondered how you go about cultivating these different type of skills each one could be kind of its own expertise but you do each so well well i need challenges in my life hmm. so every year i set something as a goal uh which will take me out of just practicing eight bar solos in the orchestral repertoire <laughs> by the way you can get really out of shape if you just do that or if you just make reads and don't, you know, ex and if you just make reads and expect that that's going to get you where you need to be, you're sadly mistaken. Just forget the idea of a, the perfect read. No, it's not going to happen. So every year I try to set a goal, play a concerto or give a recital, um, learn the Barrio Sequenza, anything I can do that'll keep my mind occupied above and beyond what I have to do at the Philharmonic. And so far that's worked for me. Are there patterns of challenges that you see your students face and that you face in this very demanding career? You know, I wish there were more opportunities for young people. Um, you know, if we were as lucky to have as many um, orchestras as say you would in Germany. There's so many community orchestras where kids can get experience. So I feel like the greatest challenge for them is just getting a job, just getting that entry level job and, and getting experience. Could we hear, I alluded to it a little bit earlier, but could we hear the story of how, of premiering the Pablo Furman Concerto for Oboe and Orchestra? Sure. Uh, Pablo Furman teaches at San Jose State. I met him at a dinner party. We were just chatting. And I said, um, why, don't, 
I really want to have a concerto written for me, and this is the kind of music I like. He said, okay. You know, that was it. And, I, I, you know, a year goes by, and I hadn't heard from him, but he was doing it. <laughs> <laughs> this piece, uh, I told him, you know, I don't want any of uh, squeaky, crazy music. I want something that's melodic. Well, he was able to combine um, combine modern tonalities with beautiful Latin solo vocal kind of um, melodies and came up with a really cool concerto, which um, is, a very, is a challenging piece. Uh, the second movement is called uh, Air of the Milango, which is a, a Latin dance, very slow. And one of his instructions at the beginning of this movement is play the first 30 bars with no breath. So as I, he said, what can you do on the oboe? And I said, well, I could circular breathe and I could play multiphonics. Be careful what you tell composers. <laughs> <laughs> Be very careful. But uh, the piece is incredibly exciting. And I'm, I'm hoping, let's see, I've played it twice now, once in San Jose for the premiere. I played it in Poland last year. And I'm hoping that... Uh, we will get to do it in, at the IDRS uh, convention next year in 2019. You are a very successful teacher as well as a performer. And you had mentioned before that you had a wonderful mentor in Louisville. And I would love to ask you a lot of questions about teaching. And the first one I think should be, how do you, become a good mentor and what are the qualities that a good mentor has for students and for colleagues and things like that? Teaching, I think you really have to love it to be successful. You also have to have worked through problems on your own and figured you know, I, I feel badly for people who are so incredibly talented, they didn't have to think, think about, well, this or this. So you, you can articulate it to a, uh, another person who's having the same problem. I sort of think of myself as like a MacGyver, sort of a creative problem solver for, for students. Um, but I think you, you have to be selfless and you're talking from one heart to another. <clears throat> uh, I would say the person who's had the most influence on my life as an oboist is Dan Ross, who makes gougers in um, Jonesboro, Arkansas. But he's uh, more like a, a Baptist minister when it comes to teaching. Uh, he has a soapbox on which he stands regularly, but... <laughs> I've learned so much from Dan, but the first and primary thing is it's one heart to another. We're not learning how to play the oboe. We're learning how to play music. Uh, and the technical stuff will come, but the most important thing is music. 
continuing on with the idea of teaching, opportunities to study with you are competitive and sought after. When you're listening to students considering who you are going to invite into your studio or accept to study with you, what makes a student stand out as interesting to you? Personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, just exactly what I was talking about. Are they more concerned with playing a perfect scale going up C major scale in the beginning of the Mozart, if they can or not? It doesn't matter to me. I want to hear a sweep and an excitement of playing the Mozart concerto, not this is a technical exercise that I have to get through, which is oftentimes what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. So that stands out. Um, there are certain things that I find are sort of hard to overcome. And uh, it's very difficult to change from a German style uh, approach to an American style. And I'm not saying that ours is better than theirs, but it's hard to make that switch. And if a student comes in, I mean, I'm very attracted to a German sound. I'll, you know, listen with great interest, but that student has to switch to the American style to make it here, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it, you have to assess whether the person um, is going to have what it takes to to, you know, get through that, that transition. Do you have advice for students who graduate and um, go off into the field? And like you said earlier, um, the opportunities are few and far in between. Do you have advice for people waiting for their first opportunity who are auditioning and working really hard Um, and not quite there yet. Absolutely, I do. Remember when I was talking about in Louisville, even though I had a job, it was a second oboe job, and I really wanted to play principal. So what did I do? I made opportunities for myself doing recitals and concertos, just kept practicing and learning how to make reads better. Uh, I think it's important. You have to have initiative to, to uh, get anywhere. You have to let people know um, what you're about. You have to let them know that music is the most important thing to you. And eventually the opportunities will start coming in, but it's hard work. Mm-hmm. Switching gears a little bit. You've given some I'm sure a slew of amazing performances, but some of them in reading over your bio that stood out to me, the Freedom Concert at the Berlin Wall and also being a member of the Philharmonic Quintet of New York, which gives concerts to workers of the World Trade Center following the September 11th disaster. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience in these historic performances and just kind of hear your reflections and thoughts on them. You know, my great joy about being in the New York Philharmonic, of course, it goes without saying that these are 
are musicians of the highest caliber. But we've been given the opportunity to see history as, as we've gone through our careers. The first time was being selected by the Philharmonic to represent the American allies uh, at the Berlin Wall concert. Um, I have a, my most cherished picture in my life is a picture with Leonard Bernstein. We were, uh, we played the concert on Christmas Eve and then the next morning we played it. And that was in Christmas Eve, it was in West Berlin. And on Christmas morning we played in East Berlin. And even though I didn't have, I was playing third, I didn't have a substantial role in the actual concert, but just being there and being part of this historic uh, down the wall, downing of the wall. And, and Bernstein said he would never play in an Eastern Bloc country until the Berlin Wall was gone. So, wow, that was amazing. Uh, the, the audience was so appreciative that there was applause for 30 minutes. Finally, the orchestra had to just leave the stage. You could hear a pin drop at the end of the concert. For about 30 seconds, there was silence and then an eruption. It was just 105 hearts to 2,000 hearts because we were, you know, there was, we were all t weeping. That was a highlight of my career. I went to um, Asia. We, we got to meet Indira Gandhi in India with wow. Zubin Mehta was conducting and six months later she'd been assassinated. Wow. Um, we went to Russia during perestroika and had a wonderful experience meeting Russian musicians and seeing, you know, that side of the uh, Soviet Union was still so sort of gray and cold, but the people, the musicians, one heart to another, we were making connections. Um, we went to Pyongyang in North Korea and gave a concert, the same thing. Music is this universal way to express love. And in the beginning of that concert, the audience had all been um, chosen, obviously, and dressed. I think the audience had to go through makeup <laughs> uh, call, and they all looked beautiful wearing their Korean um, style, uh, beautiful garments. And in the beginning, they were very reluctant to applaud. So the first piece, it was small applause and all very proper. By the end of the concert, we, uh, I guess the, we played the New World Symphony and then we played an encore, which is Ariang, uh, a Korean folk song. And while we were playing that, people started sort of rocking back and forth and you could see that they were crying and that once again, this was a time where music touched so many people that nobody wanted to leave the hall. They were clapping and waving and don't leave. So there were just so many times. Uh, the World Trade Center disaster. We were on tour in Europe 
I was at the Frankfurt airport with the New York Philharmonic getting ready to come back to the United States. And there was a TV playing this weird video at a restaurant in the airport. I'm looking, my goodness, that's the World Trade Center. And I was watching this in real time. I, you know, oh my gosh, what's happening? So I, I went back and forth between, um, through the customs three times that day, because most of the uh, management was already at the, the gate. And then I'd come back and say, what's happening? So it was determined that we were not going to get back to the United States that day. They had to get us a place to stay. And the people of Germany really took care of us. We were all just devastated. Came back into New York five days later, and you could still see the, the smoke rising from the 9-11. So we were doing that as a, a group, and it was just an amazing experience. Then our quintet was formed to play at the, um, the ground, ground zero at several of the um, businesses that had lobbies just because these people were going to work every day with this odor and this horrific uh, scene right next to them. And then the uh, quintet, uh, you know, it was one heart to another again. And it, it just meant so much to, uh, that we could give something and that they could take our love. What else? I mean, it just, my, my career has been so fortunate in, in seeing all these things happen in the world and sort of being able to draw a timeline in history with, with concerts that I've given around the world. How do you play concerts like that? Mm-hmm. I imagine it would be very difficult emotionally. How do you choose repertoire for a concert like that? What goes into the preparation for such an emotionally charged performance? I was wondering that too. I remember, you know, you're right. You can't just play lighthearted things and, um, and make, make things all better. I, I really can't recall our exact... Um, program, I think that maybe the Nielsen quintet was involved and it was just such an emotional time. I think we, we just instinctively knew what the right thing to do was. And I'll have to look that up, <laughs> what, what we actually played. Mm. But um, the uh, quintet was Judy LeClaire, Robert Langevin, Eric Roski, and Mark Nuccio. And those four people, we, we bonded in a way that you don't get to do when you're just playing, sitting next to each other in an orchestra. It was um, a very important part of my life. We did a few recordings, but they never come out on CD yet. It was a good group. <laughs> well, you mentioned Judy, and maybe this is a good time to switch gears a little bit because we had her on the podcast and she told 
maybe I don't know if you agree, Galit, the all timer of a funny story. It was really funny. In a performance, <laughs> she told us about how her cell phone went off in the middle of a concert. <laughs> I'm, surprised. <laughs> I'm surprised she owned up to that one. <laughs> and she also admitted that the New York Times wrote about it the next day as well. And we were just rolling on the floor laughing. Uh, so I wonder if you perhaps might share any stories of a funny moment or embarrassing moment on stage. Do you have any uh, secrets to spill? <laughs> I'll tell you, um, something happened this last season. I was playing principal um, and, oh, I can't remember the repertoire, but the concertmaster... I, uh, the, the week before, I had been wrapping reeds, and one of one of the reeds that I w had wrapped, I the string broke before I got all my knots put on. Uh, and I, I remember thinking, "Oh, I should go back and put some fingernail polish on that," but I forgot. <laughs> so <laughs> um, it was a great read, too, man. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm playing along, uh, warming up before the concert, and then I see this little piece of string starting to unravel at the bottom of the reed, and I'm going, uh-oh. <laughs> it's about three minutes before eight, and I just, you know, I didn't have fingernail polish or anything. The concert master gets up uh, for me to give the A, and, and I start to play the reed, and nothing comes out. <laughs> I take the elbow away from my lips, but the reed's still <laughs> the cane's still in my mouth. So I, I just look over it at uh, Grace, the English horn player, and I, I said, can you believe this? <laughs> really? Really? But fortunately, um, my habit is to, you know, play... I saved number one read for the, the most difficult piece on the program. And that was actually number two read. So I had number one read ready to go. And I just did a quick switch. But I was laughing about that the whole concert. <laughs> <laughs> really? Oh, well, see, now we know. You always need that backup read ready yes. to rock and roll. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> You've already given us so many memorable performances, but I was wondering, since you've worked with so many incredible conductors, do you have any um, memorable moments with spe specific conductors um, other than what you've already described, like Bernstein and Meta? Oh, yes. You know, as an associate principal, I have to jump in every once in a while. and. Uh, I don't know, I can't recall how many years ago, it was 15 or, it was before, before Kurt Mazur. And, no, I'm sorry, it was during Kurt Mazur's um, tenure. We were looking at Ricardo Muti as a possible, you know, new music director. I was on the artistic committee and unusually I had actually held two tickets to be in to be in, in the audience 
to listen to this concert so I could see and experience Muti from behind. Uh, and about five minutes before the, the concert starts, I notice that there's no principal oboe sitting there. And I see the second oboe player, Robert Botti, walking on stage, he's shaking his head. And I looked at my friend, I said, you know what, I better go down there. What's going on? <laughs> and the next thing she knows, I'm walking on stage with my black on, you know, the first piece was just the Rossini Overture, Viaggio Arim, which, you know, it, they all have oboe solos. And I'm so scared. You know, I, I had three minutes to warm up. I'm so scared I could barely hold the reed on my lips just because it was emotionally, I wasn't quite ready. But uh, I lived through the, the, the Rossini. And at inter in between, while they were making a stage change for the next piece, which was Fairy's Kiss, uh, the, the personnel manager came and said, uh, Ricardo, want, Ricardo Muti wants to talk to you over on stage, right? So I went back, and he just took, he took my hand and looked at me with those beautiful eyes, and he held my hand. His hands were really warm. He said, you know, Miss Seiler, the solo in the first movement of Fairy's Kiss. Yes, sir. I, I take a little time there, but he wouldn't let go of my hands. And I could feel my heart rate slow down mm. and my anxiety was going away. And I walked back on stage and played really well, but it was just that humanity, this man, understood what what the you know what I was going through and he just had the humanity to sort of help me step away from that anxiety and and then we did okay but usually I have a little more uh, lead up time when I have to jump in but that's my Muti story and I'm sticking to it <laughs> <laughs> I saw I was playing principal in Chicago a couple of years ago and um, he saw me backstage and he said, this was, remember, this is like 12 years later. He looked at me and pointed and he said, Harry's kiss. guy's <laughs> 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 got an amazing memory and he's just a great musician. That's amazing. Well, you just referenced um, dealing with performance anxiety and that's a common thread that we talk about on the podcast and something our listeners are always really eager to hear from people, especially people with um, admittedly very high pressure jobs like yours. Um, so was that something that you struggled with or was there, you know, perhaps another challenge that you dealt with as you were kind of coming into your own professionally and what hints do you have for people dealing with performance anxiety or any other particular challenge musically? I think in the beginning of my career, I was so compulsive about practicing. Um, that's how I dealt with my anxiety. Often times, maybe a little bit too much, you know, playing something over and over. And uh, I guess looking back, I, you lose spontane, spontaneity when you do that so much. Mm 
But this story with Muti, it gives you, you have to give yourself time to breathe. When you're really nervous, you just hop in there and play. And if, if you just give yourself time to breathe and think about your innards instead of who's out there, you know, who you're performing for. If you think about your heart and then look out in the audience, you see somebody, and this is Dan Ross's wisdom. You look out in the audience and see somebody who really had to work hard to get to that performance. They had to work hard. There's something you could tell that they're very sick or sad and they came to be nourished by music. You take time, take a breath and realize it's your heart speaking to that person. That's your date for the night. Um, and if you, if you get outside of your insecurities and start thinking about just the music, that's how you get over anxiety. As um, a person who's been on the other side of the curtain many times, um, what have you learned being on the panel for auditions and what are some common mistakes that you hear people make? Trying to be too technical, mm. trying to be perfect. I don't care if you miss a note, you can always play it again. I want you to do your best in an audition. So I am rooting for you because I want to have a wonderful colleague to sit next to. I'll give you whatever chance you need. If you show what we're looking for, the tone that will fit in with our orchestra, the musicality, an initiative, a spontaneity, if you can show that to me, I will forgive wrong notes, you know, as long as it's the caveat is as long as we all know it was a wrong note and you know it was and you want to have an opportunity <laughs> to play it again. <laughs> you know, sometimes you're playing tombow and your fingers just get rattled. But play it again, but first take a breath before you play it. Calm yourself down. You've played this so many times. You can do it just without thinking. And that's where you need to be in an audition. You have you know, the confidence that you can play this without thinking. Once you start thinking about it, then you get in trouble. Likely very related, but perhaps more general. What advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Don't do it unless you love it. Because 95% of the people are not going to be they're not going to have the greatest jobs and you're going to be having to pick together things in your life to make a living at this. And you don't want to be resentful. So don't go into it unless you love it. And, and then once you've committed to doing it, give it everything you've got. You don't get through this business without working 80 hours a week in the beginning. That's about it. It's just hard work. Sherry, it has been so wonderful to talk to you. Um, 
I would love to close by asking you to tell us about some upcoming performances that you have that you're excited about and where our listeners can find you on the internet. Okay. I have a website, www.sherryseiler.com, on which I do list my uh, upcoming performances. Um, the, the one um, I can think of right off the bat, independent of the Philharmonic, is a chamber music concert at Merkin Concert Hall where uh, Mindy Kaufman and Judy LeClaire, myself, are going to be playing a Lotti Trio Sonata. I'm playing the oboe d'amour. I am the solo oboe d'amourist of the New York <laughs> Philharmonic. <laughs> and, <laughs> actually, d'amour is, is, is so much fun to play. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to the possibility of playing the Furman Concerto at IDRS. Obviously, that's going to be my project for the year, you know, sort of revamping that concerto. And just um, the joys of sitting on stage with this great orchestra every week, week in and week out, um, playing with the wonderful soloists like Trifonov. I, I know we've got something coming up with him. The pianist is amazing. Uh, so I'm always looking forward to our concerts with him. I'm loving what I do still. How great was that interview? It doesn't get any better than that. It's true. Don't forget that you can follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Admittedly, the Twitter is being maintained a little less actively these days. Listen. We don't get much engagement on Twitter, so don't shade me. <laughs> you can listen to us on iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating, Google Play or YouTube. Galit, what do we have coming up next? We have some really exciting events coming up. We will be uh, at Miami University Bassoon Day with Ryan Reynolds and the Miami University Bassoon Studio. And we are also going to be at the University of Florida Double Read Day with hosts Shannon Lowe and Leslie Odom. Gator chomp. <laughs> no. <laughs> Drinking that Gatorade. <laughs> Not the Haterade. <laughs> <laughs> and who's our next guest? We have an interview with the wonderful Leah Uribe, assistant professor of bassoon at the University of Arkansas. Tune in. January 1st to hear that incredible chat. Woo pig. What? That's what they say at Arkansas. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Galit, <laughs> it's time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads. <laughs>